Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, October 25th, 2021, a new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening every day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and around the clock, on demand, for free, on our podcast. All the ways to listen live, a bunch of goodies from the show, the podcast, it is all available at our online home, GuyBensonShow.com, which is pretty easy to remember. Guy Benson Show. Here's who we've got on the program today. Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia. He's going to be here. Uh, He must be feeling pretty good. His state was wronged by Major League Baseball. The All-Star game was yanked based on a bunch of woke nonsense and lies. And now the World Series will be played in the state of Georgia because the Atlanta Braves earned a spot in the World Series And we will get the governor's reaction to that. I think he might want to do a bit of a victory dance. I wish we could get the commissioner on to listen. In our next hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire is going to be here talking vaccines and kids, mandates, and more. And in our final hour, Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. The president's approval rating continues to fall. He is really, really having trouble with independence, President Biden is. What does that mean nationally? What could it mean for Virginia as the old Dominion will vote for a governor one week from tomorrow? We'll break that all down, dive into the numbers and the dynamics with Tom Bevan. Fox News alert as we begin today's show. Let's bring you stats as we always do. Coronavirus cases all in 45.4 million. And of course, that is a lowball estimate for cases inside the United States. Experts say it's three or four times as high. In all reality, the death toll with or from COVID in the United States, 736,112. The Dow is up 72 points at this hour on pace for another record close. It's currently trading at 35,749. We'll watch that for you heading into the close, and we will report that at the top of the next hour. Something that we do here on the Guy Benson Show with some regularity, and it's something that I'm proud of and it's something that I think is important, is we try to keep our eye on the ball when it comes to a number of very important issues that may have slid past the attention of much of the media, which is not to say these are obscure issues. These are huge, huge issues that have been covered heavily by the media. But after a while, it's just sort of the nature of the beast, and you throw in some bias as well, 
the bad stuff, especially when a Democrat's in office, ultimately gets boring for much of the press. They'll cover it here or there, but it's no longer top of mind. But if we think that they're important, we are going to make sure that they remain top of mind, at least on this show, on this platform, with all of you. That's why we have been consistently covering the border crisis, not just a mention here or there, not just when it's really bad, consistently. And we've got the governor of Texas coming up later in the week on this show to talk about that. Another issue that we discussed last week and I'm going to open the show with today is Afghanistan. Biden got beaten up on Afghanistan and rightfully so. The withdrawal was an absolute national embarrassment and disgrace. Chaotic, ill-conceived, even if you support the policy, which most Americans do, the way it was executed was catastrophic, catastrophic. And I think the hope inside the White House was, well, this isn't great, but it's a short attention span and, and you know, the media is being rough on us, but this too shall pass and we'll uh, live to fight another day. Now, he hasn't really recovered. The competency crisis hit with Afghanistan, and he has been underwater ever since. But Afghanistan is not about Joe Biden and the popularity of his presidency. Afghanistan is about the people in Afghanistan, the Americans in Afghanistan, who remain there, stranded, stuck. We mentioned last week that the administration is now admitted that there are hundreds of American citizens left in Afghanistan. They've been saying about 100 now for, what, six weeks? Now that number has expanded out into the hundreds. We know that there are thousands of other Americans stuck in Afghanistan, legal permanent residents. Tens of thousands of allies stuck in Afghanistan, Afghans who we promised, the president promised to get them out, then he didn't. That issue is an ongoing shame. And whether it continues to plague Biden or his poll numbers, those chips will fall where they may. The reality is the substance of the issue is still active and it is still a terrifying and indefensible failure of the Biden administration, what's going on right now. And I want to play for you some sound, and I'm glad that they did this. CBS News, in fact, our former colleague here at Fox News, Catherine Herridge, I'm sure many of you remember her if you're a Fox News viewer. She went over to CBS, what, a year or two ago, and she did a report that I want you to hear. It's about an American citizen, one of the hundreds, apparently, who finally did get home. But the ordeal that this woman and her family went through is harrowing. And I want you to hear the story because there are a few big takeaways in my mind. Let's listen. This is from over the weekend, CBS News, Catherine Herridge reporting. Let's start with cut 33. When we first met this American mother, we agreed to call her Angela and disguise her voice for security reasons. We are trapped in Afghanistan. We have been here more than three and a half months. She told us she was visiting family when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, forcing her and her U.S.-born child into hiding. 
As desperation swelled outside the Kabul airport in late August, as the last U.S. military flights left, Angela fought for more than a day to get through the gates until a suicide bomber attacked the crowd. We have no way out. We don't know what to do. Trapped for months, U.S. citizen. The story goes on, cut 34. Angela might not have that much time. Her family might not have that much time. Army veteran Brian Kinsella first heard about Angela in August while volunteering at this temporary evacuation effort based out of a Washington, D.C. hotel. Since Kinsella has kept in nearly daily contact. To hear her family and their kids screaming in the background, it actually gives me strength to try to figure out a way to get Angela out, to get her family out, and use that as a framework to get many more people out. In late September, Angela said the State Department reached her because they might have a flight. They have called me. They know where I am. They know my situation. I've explained it to them so many times. But Angela said the State Department told her they could not help her mother or her siblings get on the flight because they aren't American citizens. All right, so a couple points here. The folks who were focused on trying to get this woman out with her family came across her case and her situation at this sort of ragtag, all-volunteer, temporary evacuation war room at a D.C. hotel. This is what should be in the situation room at the White House. This is what should be in the situation room at the State Department. But it's volunteers doing this work because the Biden administration has basically washed its hands of this. And the heavy lifting, they'll, you know, if they get calls or this, they'll try to facilitate certain things. The heavy lifting is being done by military veterans and just ordinary Americans who are disgusted by this stain on our national honor and are doing something about it. That's who's doing this work here. The second thing is, hasn't it been weird that when the Biden people talk about the number of Americans left in Afghanistan, of course, they leave out legal permanent residents because that number is thousands, thousands of Americans stuck in Afghanistan. They talk about U.S. citizens who are still in country who wish to leave. It's like, well, what are they talking about? Wish to leave. This woman that they're talking about in the CBS report explains why there are some people who don't wish to leave because they're being given these ultimatums. You might be eligible, but your kids aren't. Or you might be eligible, but your mother isn't. Are you going to leave your elderly mother? The mother of, you know, a known American or collaborator, whatever, you're going to leave her in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? So this becomes this hopeless impossible choice for so many people who aren't sure they want to get the hell out of there they're horrified they're frightened for their lives but they also don't want to consign their own loved ones potentially to death and just abandon them the way that they've been abandoned already by the u.s government that's the choice they're facing and the Biden administration uses those types of examples to put them on a separate list as like americans who don't wish to leave the CBS report wraps up here in Cut 35. With Angela's case stalled, Kinsella enlisted the help of a prominent law firm. We're doing this pro bono. That means that we are giving our time for free to help 
Angela and her family. Florianne Laveau and a team of lawyers compiled a 118-page file so that Angela could apply for an emergency entry into the U.S. for the benefit of her Afghan siblings. The process is called humanitarian parole. Because there is no U.S. consulate in Afghanistan, people who actually apply for humanitarian parole actually have to go to a third country to go to your U.S. consulate in those third countries before they can actually enter the U.S. Okay, so the resolution to this, they quote in the piece, Angela basically begging for help. God can hear us. He will support us. He will get us to a safer place. That was her quote as she was sort of breaking up over the Wi-Fi in this interview with Catherine Herridge of CBS News. And then a happy conclusion, at least for this woman and her family, quote, Recently, all the pieces fell into place after another group of volunteers came together and scrambled a flight out of Afghanistan. The flight was not funded by the U.S. government. Angela and her family flew to a country in the Middle East where her mother and siblings with their paperwork filed can now be vetted by the State Department and Homeland Security. So another group of American volunteers working on this were able to finally make it work for Angela and her family on a flight that they put together and they went out of their way on CBS in this report to say this was not the U.S. government who did this. Now, the State Department, when they talk about Americans who do get home, they want credit for that. They don't get credit for that. And how many other Angelas are there among the hundreds of Americans the thousands of legal permanent resident Americans and the tens of thousands of Afghan allies remaining in that country as the Taliban is going around beheading people. One more point on Afghanistan. We talk about this because there has to be accountability. This cannot just go away. A lot of people will never hold Joe Biden accountable. We will. He's the commander in chief. During this whole ordeal, during this entire mess, the Biden administration could hardly bring itself to say one cross word about the Taliban because they were basically our partners and they had ceded so much control to the Taliban, including rebuffing an offer reportedly, according to The Washington Post, ahead of the withdrawal to have the U.S. control the capital city throughout the withdrawal, to have a much bigger safety or security perimeter Biden said no, so the Taliban was then in charge of security during our withdrawal when we just controlled the airport and we remember the scenes from the airport. Then, of course, there was a suicide bomber that killed 13 of our people in those last few days, those horrible days. The person who was in charge of securing Kabul at the time on behalf of the Taliban which was a decision, again, that the Biden administration made, was a terrorist named Haqqani, who had a $10 million U.S. bounty on his head because he has American blood on his hands already. He was the person in charge of security on the ground in Kabul on behalf of the Taliban during all of this. The suicide bomber who killed 13 of our service members was freed from a prison at Bagram Air Air Base, which we abandoned. Another choice that was made by this administration. And as I mentioned last week, that same man, Haqqani, who now serves in the so-called government of Afghanistan, has announced that they will be giving land and financial rewards to the families 
of, guess what, suicide bombers who have killed Americans. That's the policy now of the Taliban government. And these are our supposed partners that even what last week the Biden administration in their discussions with the Taliban described their counterparts as professional. They are paying off the families of suicide bombers who kill our people. Uh, The disgrace is almost unimaginable. And even though it's not getting covered so much anymore, it is still very real. That's why we're covering it on The Guy Benson Show. We're just getting started. It's a new week. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson here on The Guy Benson Show. I'll confess I don't really watch Saturday Night Live ever. Live. I'll watch YouTube videos the next day if they get buzzed for whatever reason. And this one got some traction. It was during the Weekend Update segment, which is like their fake newscast that they do. Some back-to-back jokes about President Biden that were pretty cutting, I would say. Democrats often get treated with kid gloves on these comedy shows. This... I don't know. If you're at the White House and you hear the laughter of the crowd in New York City, well, you judge for yourself. Cut 25. At his CNN town hall, President Biden discussed the importance of addressing mental health, saying a broken spirit is no different than a broken arm. Well, if I keep betting on the Giants, I'm going to have both. Also at the town hall, President Biden admitted that he has not yet had time to visit the southern border though his approval rating has. Insiders are also saying that during meetings, President Biden repeatedly uses the F word in conversation. More concerning, the F word he keeps using is forget. And then a huge laugh from the audience. So a joke about how unpopular he is, then a joke about his mental acuity to big laughs from the crowd. I think it's healthy for us to laugh at our leaders and to poke fun at our leaders. It should happen across the aisle. Doesn't always seem to be the case, especially like the the midweek talk shows late at night. I mean, some of these are just like Democrat talking points every night. So boring. But once Joe Biden is in an area where it's sort of like openly okay to laugh at him, it just feels a little different. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A little bit of a shift culturally, perhaps. Don't read too far into it, but it's something. When we come back, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia will be here. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in on this Monday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. We are very pleased to have back on the show Brian Kemp, who is the governor of the state of Georgia, a Republican. You can follow him on Twitter at GovKemp. And, Governor, it's good to have you here again. Hey, good to be back on with you, Guy. It has to be a pretty great time to be a sports fan in the state of Georgia. And I'd imagine a lot of our listeners in Atlanta are feeling pretty good these days. You've got the number one uh, college football team in the country. The Bulldogs have looked awfully scary. And then, of course, the Atlanta Braves punching their ticket to the World Series starts tomorrow in Houston. I think the whole country is rooting for Atlanta because of the uh, the cheating scandal of the Houston Astros. So good luck there. But it's sort of an abundance of riches on the sports front these days. Well, it is. It's uh, it's a great run that we're experiencing now we got to keep chopping as we like to say and uh, we're just glad the series is coming to atlanta especially after the tragic tragedy of the major league baseball move in the all-star game because of the election security act so this is a big win not only for the braves and but also for a lot of hard-working georgians in our state and a lot of small business owners around the ballpark Yes, the commissioner of Major League Baseball might have been able to steal the All-Star game because of a bunch of lies from the Democrats about the law that you passed down there. But he cannot steal the World Series because the Braves earned that World Series. I'm sure he's been out of shape about it. That's too bad for him. It was a travesty what happened. We, we had you on the show several times to talk about it. Is there an extra level of satisfaction here? where you're feeling extra gratified potentially given what Major League Baseball did to the city of Atlanta, did to the state of Georgia in such an unjust and stupid and ignorant way a few months ago, now to have the Braves earn their way into the biggest showcase that the sport has to offer? Well, certainly poetic justice in a lot of ways considering you know the pressure that they relented to when they really shouldn't have. I mean, it was ridiculous that the decision was a political one, and that shouldn't be the case in sports. And, you know, frankly, the the lies that were being told by Stacey Abrams and a lot of other people and the pressuring that was going on to get them to pull the All-Star game and then the flip-flop we saw after that to then come out and say, oh, don't pull the All-Star game, and they still did it anyway. I mean, it, it just really was – awful what they did i mean it wasn't fair and it's also ridiculous i mean you know they the braves have been playing games in atlanta the whole time you know and to move the all-star game was just 
you know, I think it is a sign of the times, but unlike the commissioner, we didn't waver. You know, we stood up because we knew what the truth was. We know that the bill makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat, and that's how it should be uh, in our state. And I've always pushed for secure, accessible, fair elections, and that's exactly what we got. And unfortunately, now you have the Justice Department that's being just as political sue in our state over Senate Bill 202, but we're going to continue to fight that and continue to tell people what the truth is as well. Yeah, and we talked about it at the time. Someone who was joining the chorus of dishonesty was the president. Joe Biden actually endorsed the boycott, endorsed pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta based on a bunch of misinformation. He referred to your law as worse than Jim Crow, which is just a shockingly insulting thing to say, but he said it. His home state of Delaware has much more restrictive voting laws than you have now. Major League Baseball is based in New York State. There are you know, Hall of Fames in New York State, they have in some key respects more restrictive voting laws than Georgia has. None of that seemed to matter because it was a big political firestorm. And you mentioned Stacey Abrams and her role in all of this because it really seems like still to this day she's trying to have it both ways where she was beating the drum and her colleagues and the Democrats in Georgia beating the drum on Jim Crow, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. And then when their rhetoric, their false rhetoric, actually had a consequence that was going to hurt their voters, then all of a sudden they just say, well, we actually don't want the consequences from and that have emanated from and resulted from our own rhetoric. And I think she's still sort of trying to run away from that and talk out of both sides of her mouth, isn't she? Oh, no, no question. I mean, look, there, it was so hypocritical of what the president was saying and what she was saying and what, you know, how ridiculous this all is, you know. I think we may have lost Governor Kemp. We'll get him we'll get him back on the air. The other thing that I want to ask him about, and this pertains actually to another enormous race that's happening right now. We've talked about it a lot. We'll talk about it more later in the show. It's the Virginia governor's race. You would almost think that we were living in Georgia based on some of the people who have come to Virginia to campaign with Terry McAuliffe. Stacey Abrams came up and did a rally for Terry McAuliffe, along with Dave Matthews. He was there. And then the mayor of Atlanta also came up to campaign for Terry McAuliffe. I think they're worried about African-American turnout. So they are calling on Democrats from Georgia to come up to Atlanta or from Atlanta, rather, to Virginia to try to save the bacon of Terry McAuliffe. And we have the governor back. Governor Kemp, I want to play you this clip. It is from the campaign trail. Stacey Abrams doing what she does, still sort of not willing to acknowledge that she lost to you in 2018. She said at one of the rallies in Virginia that she comes from a state where she's not entitled to be governor. And I was like, well, that's right, because, you know, you lost by 50,000 votes. That's, that's sort of how it works. But Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat running in Virginia, he said this in cut 19. Listen. And he's running down the democracy saying their elections are not fair. The next day. She would be the governor of Georgia today had the governor of Georgia not disenfranchised 1.4 million Georgia voters before the election. That's what happened to Stacey Abrams. They took the votes away. So he was complaining, as he has been, about Donald Trump and Glenn Youngkin and election trutherism. And he's been falsely accusing Youngkin of things. 
But he himself, Terry McAuliffe, as we pointed out here, is a truther about the 2000 election. He won't really admit that George Bush won. He called that a stolen election repeatedly. And here we go. A familiar claim, Governor Kemp, about you and about your race and about Stacey Abrams, where he said basically it was stolen from her. She should have been the governor, but millions, 1.4 million voters were disenfranchised by you. And it feels like Groundhog Day with these lies because they keep they keep telling them, <laughs> even though they're they're sort of like, oh, it's it's awful to question elections and it is totally inappropriate. And any laws being passed in Texas or in Georgia, it's it's all based on a pack of lies. But also the rightful governor of of uh, Georgia, rather, should be Stacey Abrams because they stole it from her. When you hear that from Terry McAuliffe broadly. And then the specific claim about you, what's your reaction? Uh, it's outrageous. I mean, first of all, we were simply following federal law to keep our voter rolls secure, which every state, in my opinion, should be doing. Uh, that's what we've been doing in Georgia for a long time. And by the way, that was done under Democratic Secretary of States back in the day. But also, it's just uh, disingenuous for McAuliffe and Abrams to lie about the 2018 and then now lie about uh, Senate Bill 202, the Elections Integrity Act. But make no mistake, guy, Stacey Abrams is is lining her pockets financially by all this rhetoric. I mean, she's out there raising money, and it shouldn't be just the people that, of Georgia that are worried should be scared about that, but people all over the country. I mean, all this money she's raising uh, and lining her pockets, she's using really to spread these these lies about what the truth is. And the good thing for us is the truth is on our side. And that's why she flip-flopped on moving Major League Baseball. She flip-flopped on Manchin's compromise, saying that she supported voter ID when she trashed her, saying it was suppressive and Jim Crow 2.0. And she knows the truth. And she's forgotten the fact that in 2018, when I beat her, we had the largest African-American turnout that cycle in the state of Georgia in the governor's race. I do want to ask you about another Georgia politician who's been up to Virginia for Terry McAuliffe. It's the mayor of Atlanta, Mayor Bottoms, who is not running for reelection. The city has been plagued with some really serious crime problems. You and I have talked about those crime problems on this show. Crime has been one of the issues, actually, in the Virginia race. Did you find it interesting that the Democrats in Virginia decided to bring Mayor Bottoms, who's so unpopular she's not even running for reelection in her own city, to come – try to help Terry McAuliffe? Well, from what I understand, McAuliffe needs some help when he says that, you know, parents shouldn't be deciding what's best for their children in regards to their education, especially when it's K-12 through education. It's a pretty outrageous statement, and I think the voters are going to punish him for that, but it's pretty obvious to me that they're just trying to rally the base now, but I don't think people in the middle in Virginia are buying it. Last question for you, Governor Kemp, and I'm sure you have uh, seen the clip and heard the quote, and I'm sure you also get tired of being asked about things that former President Trump says about you. But recently at a rally, he said that perhaps the state of Georgia would be better off if you were not governor, but Stacey Abrams were governor. I, of course, strongly disagree with that. I'm sure you do as well. Without necessarily feeding the feud with President Trump, what would the state of Georgia look like under Stacey Abrams and Democratic leadership, you know, at the governor level, compared to what you have done as a conservative in that state? 
Well, it'd be a scary thing to think about, Guy. I mean, you think about where our economy is. We just announced last week we had the lowest unemployment rate on record in the state of Georgia. We got the most people working. Uh, we are clicking on all cylinders and continuing to fully come back from the devastation of the pandemic. And I just can't even imagine what it would be like if Stacey Abrams would here, was here. We would have every mandate imaginable when, when you know, I don't think uh, government should be mandating any more than they have to on businesses, if at all. Uh, I've been a small business owner for 35 years. I just can't imagine it'd be more like a dictatorship than a governorship. Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, my best friend, is a huge Bulldogs fan. So she's having a very good fall so far. And knock on wood for you guys down there, all the Bulldogs fans, that you can keep it up. I'm not a big SEC guy. I've got to admit I'm a Big Ten guy. But if I have to root for an SEC team, it's Georgia. And uh, they seem to be the real deal this season. We'll see if they can get it done uh, in the SEC championship game. But more immediately, you've got the World Series. First couple games are in Houston. Then it shifts back. Uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, Truist Park. Are you going to make it maybe to Game 3, Game 4? I'm still trying to work on my calendar, but look, uh, I'm pulling for the Braves to win the World Series to close the the year out, and then we'll start the new year with a Bulldog National Championship. How's that sound? (laughs) Some wish casting there, but both things are actually totally plausible, which has to be exciting for all of our listeners across the state of Georgia, especially in that Atlanta metro, that injustice that was done to them in midsummer, right? The midsummer classic really doesn't matter quite as much as the fall classic. The World Series is coming to Atlanta because the Braves earned it and there's nothing that the woke leadership. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Major League Baseball can do about it. And I have to say, even though I'm a Yankee and a Yankees fan, it makes me happy that that's the case. And I will be pulling for Atlanta in this World Series. Governor Kemp, down there in Georgia, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for making time for us. Hey, the real winner is going to be the fans and the hardworking Georgians that are going to benefit from those games being Atlanta. Thanks, Guy. You bet. Governor Kemp on the Guy Benson Show. Stepping aside, coming right back. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's the Guy Benson Show. You know, during the break, we just talked to Governor Kemp. Georgia in this uh, this playoff run for the Braves heading to the World Series. And uh, if you're not a Houston Astros apologist and you're rooting for the Braves, I would say, across the country. And producer Christine mentioned, you know, how much of this success from the Braves can be traced back to me, Guy Benson, throwing out a first pitch at a Braves game this season. That was back in June. As I recall, they were on a bit of a skid. They were struggling a bit. Then I show up, I throw out the ceremonial first pitch. They then win both games that I attended. Matt, who's the pro- our programming director at our affiliate down in Atlanta, he said, you know, 
maybe you brought some energy, some juju here that helped turn this thing around. And I can't take full credit for the Braves going to the World Series. But, I mean, look, the results do speak for themselves. So I'm, I'm not asking for praise. I'm not asking for a bunch of applause. All I'm asking for is if they win it all, a World Series ring. And maybe a little piece of the uh, postseason revenue pie. I don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> that was a very cool experience, though, throwing out that first pitch. Still uh, one of the highlights of the last few years for me. And again, I can't, never, ever would imagine that I would be rooting for the Braves, honestly. You know, going back to the 96 and 98 World Series, or it was 96 and 99, rather. Playing the Braves, beating the Braves, the Yankees. I was never a big Braves fan, let's put it that way. But what happened to them with the politics at play and that unholy alliance of woke corporate leaders, weak corporate leaders, the president of the United States stomping into that with his stupid, completely over-the-top rhetoric, Stacey Abrams, all of that, taking the all-star game away from the people of Atlanta and the fans in Georgia and the businesses there is just awful. Governor said it was poetic justice that the World Series is now coming to Atlanta. I agree. By the way, I mentioned Biden. I saw this story over the weekend. It's uh, New York Post is where I saw it. The Department of Homeland Security has allocated roughly half a million dollars to put up a security fence at the president's vacation house. Right, He's got that beach house where he goes constantly. Right, seems like the worse the news cycle, the faster he gets out there. To sort of, uh, you know, relax and have some executive time to himself. But Rehoboth, Delaware is the beach town. That's where he's got his spot. And they want to add more fencing there. So DHS and taxpayers are going to pay something like 460 grand for that. And I have no problem with that. Right. He's the president. He needs to be protected. I'm sure that there are some security risks when you've got the commander in chief and the leader of the free world in a vacation house that he's owned for years, that's not necessarily equipped initially to protect a president. Now, the Secret Service, they know what they're doing. They're very professional, and they've made it work. But evidently, in order to really shore up the property, this decision has been made. And I don't begrudge that at all. As a taxpayer, I have no issue whatsoever with making sure that the president of the United States is fully protected. However, isn't it interesting perhaps to extrapolate the lesson here? It has clearly been decided that for the safety and security of the president of the United States, a physical barrier is being erected. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share by the U.S. government in order to prevent unauthorized access to a place. Joe Biden has finally built a wall 
Unfortunately, it's in Rehoboth, Delaware, to keep uh, the people out of his vacation house. Perfectly fine, but I know they don't like walls because of Trump. I know they say walls don't work. Obviously, their actions say otherwise. And given the historic disaster at the border that Biden has caused, maybe they could revisit their rhetoric and their policies on walls because they work. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second out of three here on the Monday edition. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Catch me on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network. I'll be on the panel 7 p.m. Eastern time with the gang over there. As we begin this middle hour, let's bring you a Fox News alert. The Dow ends up in the green, up 66 points today, closing at 35,743. Joining us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and a best-selling author, most recently of Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, great to have you back. And thank you, Guy, for having me on this busy Monday. Very busy. I want to talk about this development with Moderna's data now showing that the COVID-19 vaccine does produce a strong immune response in children 6 to 11 years old. What are your overall thoughts on vaccines against COVID for children? I'm a very pro-vaccine person for all the reasons that you and I have discussed many, many times on this show. I know a lot of friends who are parents of young kids, none of whom are anti-vax, but they just aren't really sure or sold yet on the vaccine for kids because they're not sure if the vaccine is needed for kids. What are your thoughts based on what you know? Well, great question. And I did have a piece on this from on foxnews.com from over the weekend because while Moderna uh, stated today um, some of their results from their 5 to 11 trial, those that data has not been made public yet, nor has it been peer-reviewed. Whereas the Pfizer data late Friday evening was made public. So I spent late Friday, early Saturday morning really looking at it. And Here's my overarching um, opinion on vaccinating the 5 to 11 age group. First of all, I think it is important that we have a safe and efficacious vaccine for people of all ages because anyone can be um, vulnerable to COVID-19. And when it comes to kids, while the overwhelming majority will not only not have severe disease or be hospitalized or even die from it, but about 50% of them won't even have any symptoms. So when you look at the hospitalization rate, however, in this age group, the majority, over 50%, some studies quote over 70%, have at least one pre-existing illness. So when we talk about vaccinating this age group, among the among, this age group. Among the very tiny number of kids who have gone to the hospital with COVID, 
the large majority or at least a significant majority have some other condition as well. That's right. Uh, now, from the 5 to 11-year-olds, a little less than 160 kids have died from COVID-19. So it's not zero. However, the problem is, I mean, uh, undeniably, the FDA is going to give the green light for the EUA. I mean, that's just going to happen. We know that. Now, the big question is, what's the CDC going to do with it? Because the CDC can say, you know, maybe we should be doing this in a risk-based strategy. Perhaps we offer the vaccine to those who have pre-existing health conditions or have someone at home who's immunocompromised. But if the CDC comes forth and recommends this in all kids, we know what happens in the United States. Mandates follow. So I am concerned with that because when you looked at the adolescent data, there was the increased risk of myocarditis. Well, the Pfizer themselves said no cases of myocarditis were seen in the 5 to 11 age group, but then they also admitted, oh, by the way, the study wasn't powered enough, meaning there weren't enough children enrolled in the study to capture those rare adverse effects. So are we going to do what we did with the adolescents and approve it and then wait until the mass vaccination campaign where you start seeing some of those rare side effects? I really hope not. I hope that the United States becomes a little bit more flexible like other countries where they're offering one dose or they're doing the risk-based strategy or they're saying, hey, you know what, unless you're vulnerable, you know, I don't really think that you need to be vaccinated. So they have to scrutinize a little bit more through the data um, before I can hop on the bandwagon of uh, generalized vaccination in this age group. Interestingly, though, the Pfizer data, they, they looked between the 10 micrograms and the 30 micrograms, and they said the 30 micrograms elicited side effects that were unacceptable. So therefore, the 10 micrograms is what was determined to be safe and efficacious. The smaller the dose Moder- for kids. Yes. The Moderna's, however, is 50 micrograms. So I'm very interested to see their data to see what sort of side effect proto- or side effect um, they profile they saw following the vaccine, because it's an even higher dose than the dose that Pfizer said was unacceptable. Meanwhile, because you were talking about the prospect and the specter of vaccine mandates, which are already highly controversial, but for children, which I think would be even more controversial for this particular virus, right? There are some vaccines that are universally required for kids in schools for good reason. I think there is room for debate on this one, at least for now. It seems like that's where you are as well. But we heard Dr. Walensky from the CDC suggesting in the last few days that even if you do get kids vaccinated, she still wouldn't say that the masks could come off in schools. And you and I have had this conversation ad nauseum as well. The masks in schools, there's not good science behind that to begin with. Then if you've got a bunch of vaccinated kids, it seems even more completely anti-scientific to keep that requirement in place. And yet it, it seems like very few people, at least in the public health bureaucracy, bat an eye when the CDC comes out and said, yeah, we might be sticking you know, sort of for the foreseeable future, masking these kids, even if they're vaccinated, it just seems honestly insane. Well, Guy, I can tell you, it, to me, it is like the, the CDC single-handedly has done the most undermining of vaccine confidence than anyone else by even telling adults, even if you're fully vaccinated, you're still going to be wearing a mask. And now for her to say that, for kids. Parents are already hesitant to get their kids vaccinated. If you say they're still going to wear a mask in school, 
even if they're vaccinated, you're going to have a significant drop-off of kids getting vaccinated. That should not be the overarching message. The, it should be, we are moving towards a place where we will be removing these COVID restrictions. And by doing that, we increase our vaccination rates. I want to play for you a soundbite. This is our colleague, Neil Cavuto, who just has gone through COVID. And as many viewers and Fox News fans know, Neil has MS as well. So he's definitely immunocompromised. He was fully vaccinated. He had a breakthrough case. He talked about it on Media Buzz with Howie Kurtz yesterday. And here is part of what Neil said in Cut 30. Take the political speaking points and toss them. For now, I'm begging you, toss them and think of what's good, not only for yourself, but for those around you. If you don't want to do it for yourself, if you think it's a pain in the ass, I get that. But think of others around you. I dare say people who experience this or have seen loved ones who've been affected by this or have ever died from this are not judging the wisdom of mandates. So... Doctor, this is interesting because Neil's making the point. He's basically begging people, please go get vaccinated. Think not just of yourself, but of others as well. I had a very respectful professional exchange with another colleague of ours, Lisa Booth, on Twitter over the weekend. She's unvaccinated. She's been very public about that. And she said, honestly, I am a low risk profile of someone of my age and health. I don't want to do it. I'm fine if people want to do it for themselves, but don't force others to do it. It's about individual choice, protecting yourself. That's really the benefit. It's not really a societal benefit. You're not really protecting other people by getting vaccinated. And I wonder where you come down on this, because my take briefly is it seems to me, I'm not the doctor you are, that it is primarily a personal benefit that someone makes a decision for themselves to protect themselves on getting vaccinated, but there are some community impacts potentially as well in terms of spread, in terms of, you know, ICUs in some cases getting crowded. Where do you come down in this debate about what ultimately the benefit is to the person or to the community or both? How do we how do we weigh these things? That's a great question. And Lisa and Neil actually both make very good points. And if we had this discussion six months ago, my, I would err more on Neil's argument by overwhelmingly, um, but we have to give cre- some credence to Lisa's argument at this point. So, by and large, you know the vaccine drastically reduces the rate of severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Thank goodness for people like Neil Cavuto, who are on immunosuppressant medications, who are otherwise vulnerable to this illness, that he was fully vaccinated when he had his breakthrough case. We don't know what would have happened if he were not fully vaccinated. Um, However, as we have seen, who doesn't love Neil? He's amazing. As we have seen, over the last six months, Pfizer just released new data last week that showed while we were reporting 96% efficacy in preventing symptomatic illness, any symptom, six months ago, after six months, it does seem that that overall reduces down to about 84%. Um, but again, is that really a big deal? Because are we trying to get to zero symptoms or just reducing the amount of hospitalizations and deaths? We have found that these, with these breakthrough infections, thankfully, they tend to be significantly more mild. You are still able to transmit the virus. Now, some, the, the studies are suggesting that you have a lesser viral load, you have less right. viable 
viral particles in your nasal pharynx and your rate of shedding is shorter than if you were unvaccinated. So while Lisa is right that a person who is fully vaccinated can shed and can transmit to others, it does seem that the likelihood and duration of that shedding is less than if someone were unvaccinated. And I just want to say this, doctor, and just to jump in real quick, I think what is really helpful and constructive about this conversation that we're having is we are treating everyone with respect. We are bringing up arguments. We aren't just being dismissive of anyone because so much of the discussion has been, frankly, totally counterproductive. And we're trying to do it a different way here and be thoughtful and respectful and persuasive. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, back here on The Guy Benson Show. Last week, we played you a soundbite. It was from Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State. She was guest hosting on The View. And must have substantially raised the average IQ on that set just by her presence. And the issue of schools and critical race theory and racial indoctrination and racialist curricula, that all came up. And we played you the clip. And we're going to play it again because it was so good. There's been a backlash, obviously, because there's a backlash to everything. A very stupid backlash in this case. Here is what Secretary Rice said. I think she put it extremely eloquently in cut 36. I come out of an academic institution and uh, this is a something that academics debate. What is the role of race and so forth? And, and let me be very clear. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't go to a movie theater or to a restaurant with my parents. I went to segregated schools till we moved to Denver. Mm-hmm. My parents never thought I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice, but they also told me that's somebody else's problem, not yours. You're going to overcome it and you are going to be anything you want to be. And that's the message that I think we ought to be sending to kids. One of the worries that I have about the way that we're, we're talking about race is that it either seems so big that somehow white people now have to feel guilty for everything that happened in the past. I, I mm-hmm. don't think that's very productive. Or black people have to feel disempowered by mm-hmm. race. I would like black kids to be completely empowered to know that they are beautiful in their blackness. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. And she got a big round of applause for that. Now, I would guess, I'm not necessarily the best arbiter of public opinion, right? I have ideological beliefs. I follow things very closely. I'm not just your average run-of-the-mill voter or political observer. But I also don't think I'm terribly out of touch. I would guess that if you played that clip for every American and said, do you agree or disagree with what she said, I think it would be somewhere around 70 to 80 percent of the American people would say, yes, I agree with what she said. But the wokes do not. The wokes are very angry about this because they support hardcore racial division. It's part of the mother's milk excuse me, lactating person's milk of their worldview and the way that they actually try to get to kids as early as possible and override 
what parents want. I know Barack Obama in Virginia over the weekend called this all a trumped up culture war, which is nonsense. It's real. It's making an impact because people can see it with their own eyes and gaslighting, whether it's from Barack Obama or Terry McAuliffe or anyone else, isn't going to work. So Condoleezza Rice said what she said. She was right. She was brilliant. She said it well, of course. There's a website called The Grio, which is an offshoot of MSNBC. And one of their writers is this guy, Toure is his name. He goes by one word like Madonna, right, or Cher, except those people are actually famous. So Toure, I guess, used to be one of their hosts. I don't know. But he's one of the woke race baiters that they have over there. So he wrote a column attacking Condoleezza Rice. Headline, Condoleezza Rice's CRT stance proves she's a foot soldier for white supremacy. And he was blathering on in the piece about how we cannot protect children and their, quote, fragile white hearts from difficult truths. I don't think anyone's arguing that we shouldn't teach history, and there are some very ugly parts of our history. We should not avert our eyes from those things. That is different than what Condoleezza Rice is arguing against, which I think is the thing that so many people find deeply destructive and offensive. I'd be more upset about this piece at the Grio by Toure if I felt like it might actually work in influencing people, but I don't think it would. Again, I might be totally wrong on this. I think if you had Condoleezza Rice in her statement and then this column from Toure side by side, the overwhelming majority of the American people would say, oh, uh, we're with her, not with this craziness. And how absurd on its face, preposterous, insulting. Condoleezza Rice, a foot soldier for white supremacy. I mean, it just gets so exhausting. This is all they have, these types of arguments, personal, invective, right? Not substantive points. Ad hominem, race baiting, of course, this, this is how they operate. I think it is so off-putting to so many people, at least my hope is, that they will in the long run lose. Oh, and by the way, here's a fun little footnote. They misspelled the word soldier in this headline. Condoleezza Rice's CRT stance proves she's a foot solider for white supremacy. Although I wonder if correct spelling is also white supremacy. Everything is white supremacy. And when you abuse a term like this, it then means nothing. White supremacy is a thing, and it's deeply evil. When you're calling Condoleezza Rice the face of it, you are so far gone, people are right to point and laugh. That is the correct response to Toure's column. Three cheers again for what Condi said. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. I want to break down some numbers that I think you might find interesting straight ahead. This and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. GuyBensonShow.com We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. There was a piece that I saw over the weekend, the New York Times published it. One of their writers, Benjamin Applebaum. 
was the author. He is an opinion writer for the Times. He focuses on economics. And here was the headline. Resistance to taxation is the rotten core of the modern Republican Party. And I had to laugh at this. Resistance to taxation is one of the best things about the Republican Party. Right? There are some problems and some issues in my mind with the Republican Party. Them trying to let me keep more of the money that I earn is not among them. It's actually one of the big differences between the two parties, and there are a lot of them. But on policy, Republicans generally believe that families and people and businesses are entitled to keep more of what they earn and that the money does not fundamentally belong to the state and the state just generously allows them to keep some of it. That's how status and increasingly many Democrats see things. Right? If you are not giving them through confiscation more and more and more of your money, whether you're an entrepreneur or a job creator or just you know an, a family earning an income, you are starving the government. You are withholding from the government money that they are entitled to to then redistribute and use as they see fit for their various projects, which are often wasteful, dysfunctional, and terrible, I would also add. So he goes off about how it's so awful, so terrible that these Republicans resist taxation and that they valorize various ways to reduce your tax burden. And, of course, conservatives on the Internet reacted immediately and somewhat amusingly. Dan McLaughlin from National Review retweeted the piece. He said, did George III write this? (laughs) Because, I mean, literally – Our country was founded on resistance to taxation, right? This dude wrote a hot take column in the New York Times about how resistance to taxation is the rotten core of the modern Republican Party, when in fact it was also the raison d'etre for the founding of the country. (laughs) Caleb Howe, another writer, called this a tread on me column, (laughs) which I, I hadn't heard that one before. Right, the don't tread on me, right, gas and flag and that whole slogan. I, there are some people who actually do want the government to tread on them, like do whatever you want. Tax me more, tax me harder. In fact, a lot of those people live in very blue places like San Francisco, California, for example, where I spent some time over the weekend for a wedding and I've got a story. There are people out there who absolutely want the government telling them what to do and what not to do and sort of get off on being bossed around by the government. I'm not one of those people, obviously. Orrin Hatch, the former senator, he's got a very funny Twitter account, retired Orrin Hatch. He's always been self-deprecating. He loves talking about how old he is. So he tweets out the piece. I'm old enough to remember when it was the British saying this about America. On a more serious note, Because I think it's fine to mock this column. But it's also worth responding to some of the points. I would direct you to a piece that I wrote today at townhall.com. You can find it on the tip sheet. There was a really good thread offered by a congressional staffer, J.P. Friere, who actually went through the whole column and quoted 
a bunch of lines from it and then responded, pointing out some huge blind spots. I know a left-wing writer at the New York Times has blind spots, many of them. Missing policies, misunderstanding policies, ignoring hypocrisies and double standards, totally just setting aside inconvenient arguments on this front from the left. So he really went through on a substantive basis and sort of fisked the column, old-fashioned internet word. Point-by-point rebuttal, it's worth your time. I embedded a fair amount of it in my piece at townhall.com. Today, there was also this, and we touched on this briefly last week, but I really want to underscore this point because the Democrats right now, right, they control everything. Biden gave the speech earlier today talking about build back better. They're trying to get some sort of deal together to pass something. And what they're talking about, among other things, is raising taxes. They tell us it's trillions of dollars, it costs zero dollars, but it's going to raise taxes, and it's not going to raise taxes unless you're rich, except that's not really true. Tobacco taxes and excise taxes and other things that will absolutely impact non-rich people. In any case, with soft economic growth numbers, soft employment numbers, these geniuses, they only have a few ideas, and one of them is tax people and spend more money. It's like... That is the instinct. You might call it even the rotten core of the Democratic Party. Tax and spend. They want to tax businesses and small businesses to raise the cost of employing people. That seems like a real galaxy brain move. They want to raise the business tax higher than China's. And in order to justify that, they make all sorts of claims And weirdly, they're actually going back and talking about the Republican tax cuts under the Republican Congress and President Trump back in 2017. That when they talk about spending trillions upon trillions of dollars, the way that they try to make it sound okay and say things like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if certain things are paid for and they're actually fighting over whether or not they want to pay for everything or anything or all of it or what have you. But You'll often hear progressives say, well, the Republicans didn't pay for their tax cut. Well, first of all, I don't think you necessarily have to pay for something where you're just letting people keep more of their money. Right? That is not government spending. That's people keeping more of their money. But a lot of the predictions that they made about the economic impact of those tax cuts have been absolutely dead wrong. And as they make a bunch of predictions and assertions now – in favor of their new tax and spend agenda, although it's just like a a reboot, reheating a lot of the stuff that they always talk about. You have to look at their recent history when it comes to projections and statements that they make, which have been overwhelmingly, profoundly wrong. When the Republicans cut taxes across the board, by the way, is tax cuts for the rich and for big business. No, every single income group in America got a tax cut. Wages went up. The economy roared. Trump would have won without the pandemic. Remember the 2019 economy was incredible. Nancy Pelosi predicted that the impact of the tax cuts would be, quote, Armageddon. She literally called it the end of the world. That's what she called it. She called it Frankenstein's monster. The worst legislation she had ever seen in her entire life. 
The Democrats argued at the time, back in 2017, that the Republican tax cuts to cut everyone's taxes were going to kill thousands of people. They actually went with this murderous tax cuts. And on and on they went. And the argument was, well, you're going to cut taxes and then the government is going to get starved. The federal government won't have nearly enough money to do the things that need to be done to keep people alive. And therefore, these are deadly, deadly tax cuts. And what happened? The opposite. Taxes went down. Tax revenues went up because the economy grew. People paid more to the government in taxes because they were making more because the economy was going well. Growth. Exactly what the Republicans said would happen. Exactly what their argument was in favor of a pro-growth reduction in taxes. And it was still like, you know, the government was still making the, the revenue projections were roughly around the modern historical average. It's not like they were cutting things to the bone. Not even close. There was no spending cuts. These were tax cuts. And it spurred the growth that they said it would, that the Democrats said it would not. Democrats said it was end of the world, Armageddon, people are going to die. The opposite happened, and they should have to be held accountable for that. right? If you go out there and scream and shriek at the top of your lungs that you know X, Y, and Z is going to happen because of a policy, and then not only do X, Y, and Z not happen, in fact, A, B, and C, the opposite happen, that's on you. The Nonpartisan Tax Foundation put out a memo recently. Let me just read from this to underscore the point. The Congressional Budget Office now estimates that the federal government received $370 billion in corporate tax revenue over the past year, fiscal year 2021, matching the record high level from 2007. This year's robust corporate tax collections calls into question efforts by the administration and congressional Democrats to increase the corporate tax rate and raise other corporate taxes based on claims of relatively low tax collections following the tax cuts in 2017. In fact, Corporate tax collections this year are about 25% higher than what was collected in 2017 prior to the passage of the tax cuts. In addition, individual income tax collections rose to an all-time high. And in total, federal tax collections reached over $4 trillion in fiscal year 2021, also an all-time high. So these Democrats demagoguing the hell out of these tax cuts because they didn't want Trump to have a legislative success. They were telling everyone you're going to die. The government's going to run out of money. This is so shockingly irresponsible. The government can't afford these types of tax cuts for the rich. It's just all a bunch of baloney. And here we are where the corporate tax, where they want to raise it. They want to raise the corporate tax higher than what China has right now as we try to compete with China and other countries around the world. Corporate tax revenues are at an all-time high, 25% higher than they were before the tax cuts. I know some of this gets a little dry and wonky, but I think it's just such a crystal clear example of Republicans making a reasonable case in favor of a pro-growth policy, Democrats losing their minds. The media repeated all of these lies over and over again, people freaking out about it. And then the opposite of what they predict happens and exactly what the Republicans predict happens. And yet here we are about to have another giant fight over taxes, probably, 
And the Democrats just want you to pretend, all of us collectively, that we all have amnesia and we don't remember how wrong they were about the last big battle on this front. One other point on this, actually two. Revenues taken in by the federal government from taxes are at an all-time high. And yet we are going to have a massive deficit again. It is not because taxes are too low. Republicans lowered taxes and revenues went up to an all-time high. The problem is we spend far, far too much in the United States, the federal government. Neither party is serious about fixing that problem. Republicans, at least some of them, are quasi-serious about it. The Democrats are just in full-blown delusion about it. But if the revenue picture doesn't show you that the spending is the problem, I'm not sure what could illustrate it. And then lastly, this is my final point, coming back to that New York Times column and how awful it is that Republicans celebrate the idea that you should try to reduce your tax burden, right, and reduce the amount of money that you have to pay to the government, I would simply remind the New York Times and any Democrats who are stroking their chins, nodding along about these awful Republicans, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, has very much taken advantage of exactly the kinds of loopholes that they always rail against, where they used a loophole that, in fact, Democrats had campaigned to get rid of, to shield half a million dollars of their income from speaking fees and books. Now, if they want to practice what they preach and put their money where their mouth is, literally, why would they seek those loopholes or deductions? They should just pay more. In fact, Joe Biden himself in 2008 said paying more in taxes is a patriotic act, and yet he has not done that. He has availed himself of an opportunity repeatedly to reduce his burden, which I have no problem with except It's hypocrisy when you're the guy saying it's patriotic to pay more in taxes. There's also a New York Post report last month that Biden might owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in back taxes. So there's the deadbeat question as well. Why so unpatriotic, Joe? It's not my word. That's not my description. That's not my framing. That's yours. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Here on The Guy Benson Show. So Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary under President Biden, she was on CNN and was talking about inflation, something that we've been discussing, of course, here for months at this point because it is real and it's been clearly real and present for a while and yet what did we hear from the white house whenever people would raise this concern say well yes but it's transitory that was their buzzword transitory inflation it's fleeting basically it's here just for a hot minute then it'll be gone so don't you worry your little pretty heads about that you'll be fine well here's the treasury secretary on cnn talking about the not-so-transitory nature of this inflation that we're experiencing. Cut 14. Monthly rates of inflation have already fallen substantially from the very high rates that we saw in the spring and early summer. Um, On a 12-month basis, the inflation rate um, will remain high 
uh, into next year because of what's already happened. But uh, I expect improvement uh, by the end of by the middle to end of next year. All right. So she's now telling us that she's hopeful to see improvement on inflation by the middle to the end of next year. 2022. So what, maybe a year from now? They hope with an election coming, they better hope that that's the case. But that's not so transitory anymore, is it? Where they're expecting people's buying power to be low for inflation to remain high and elevated into deep into next year. Have you filled up your car recently? I did the other day. That was something. Not the worst I've ever seen, but it was like, whoa. The one that really shocked me was we got Chinese food a few nights ago. Place that we've been getting delivery from for years. It's like a neighborhood Chinese place, right? And we would get usually give or take about the exact same order once a week, once every other week. And I knew exactly what it would cost. It was $39. This time, she said, your total is $47. It's like, whoa, that's just inflation, right? We didn't order an extra dish. That was my initial thought. Did I order something extra? Nope, that's just inflation. And it's those little moments in the grocery store at where people absolutely recognize what's happening and the spin that it's just going to be really quick and transitory. Obviously, the White House even feels like it's inoperative at this point. Oh, and by the way, the Democrats want to spend trillions of more dollars right now. How does that sound in terms of a plan when inflation is already taking a bite out of people's bank accounts? Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Tom Bevan from Real Clear Politics will be here. The president's job approval continues to suffer. And we will also bring you the latest on the Virginia race. It is nip and tuck. That's all ahead. The happy hour upcoming. Don't go anywhere. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. On this Monday, thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free each and every day. And the happy hour is sponsored each and every day by the Finnish Long Drink. Good stuff. Please check it out. If you are 21 plus, of course, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. TheLongDrink.com. You can order online. You can see where it's sold near you. And some more states coming down the pike. That's what I've heard from a source, an unnamed source here at The Guy Benson Show. As we begin our final hour of this first show of the week, let's welcome back into the program Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. Tom, welcome back. Always great to be with you, Guy. Let's start with the national scene and President Biden. 
His approval rating, you tweet about it regularly, we see now at 538. They have him at a new low in their average. You guys have had him sinking now for weeks. Give us your big picture thoughts on the president's struggles because they seem to really begin in earnest with the Afghanistan fiasco, but there has not been a rebound, as some people predicted. In fact, things have deteriorated further. What's going on here? Well, I, I do think Afghanistan was sort of a jolt to the system. I mean, there were <clears throat> there were certain crises that were that were piling up, but but hadn't really, you know, the wave hadn't crested, so to speak. I mean, there was the border issue from literally the time that he took office. There had been some warning shots about inflation, uh, and and then Afghanistan happened, and and that really did uh, a couple of things. And I've, I've talked about this before. I mean, I think there are two things. Number one. It exploded the myth that sort of the adults were in charge, right? That this was the competent, the experienced uh, administration, and mm-hmm. and we really found out that that wasn't, in fact, the case. And the other thing was that Biden had promised the American public that he was going to tell us the truth, good, bad, or otherwise. He said it all throughout the campaign. He said it in his inauguration speech. And that was the first time. I mean, we had seen things, you know, go back to the border where the administration would, would deny that it was a crisis, would say, hey, this is... This is seasonal. This is fine. This happens all the time. Um, And people sort of knew that that wasn't true. But with Afghanistan, you actually saw literally these vivid images of people falling off of airplanes and babies being lifted over walls and the administration trying to tell us that this was completely normal, that this was actually a success story. And so I think that really eroded this level of trust. And now you look at these numbers, whether he's seen as honest and trustworthy, whether he's seen as a strong leader, whether he's seen as as being uh, <clears throat> as caring about you know people like you, the, that's a question that pollsters often ask. He's lost dramatic ground, uh, particularly with independence, and so I think that's what we've seen. Uh, why his numbers have eroded so quickly after Afghanistan, and and why they're unlikely to rebound unless he's able to somehow restore that trust that people had in him when he when he took office. And you know, if COVID and the pandemic finally gets better. And we move past it if the economy rebounds. I mean, that's the thing, Tom. There's so much time between now and the midterm elections, right? They are a year away. A lot can happen in one year. So I think it is worthwhile to pay attention to what's happening with the president, his approval ratings. I think a lot of Republicans are looking at these numbers and saying, "Okay, this is a great environment for us. A lot of Democrats are looking at those numbers and they're feeling heartburn all over the place. But it's. Certainly too early to be counting chickens on the Republican side of things or to completely panic on the Democratic side of things. On the other hand, to see these ratings go so south so quickly and sort of stick down there, that does have to be something of a concern, not just about this upcoming race in Virginia, for example. We'll get to that in a second. But just broadly speaking about, okay, is this a presidency that may not recover? It might, but – Things are in much more dire straits currently than I think most people could have anticipated even over the summer. No, that's right. You go back and look at Trump, too. I mean, Trump, when he took office, uh, you know, his approval ratings declined all throughout his first year. Of course, he was getting hammered by the sort of day in and day out by the media over the Russia collusion thing. Um, But in December, you know, he managed to and Republicans managed to pass their tax cuts. He, He was down at a a base of about, I think his low is around 37, 38%. And then his numbers recovered into the mid 40s. So it, it's certainly possible 
that that Biden could recover. As you mentioned, if, if COVID sort of wanes away, if if inflation doesn't rear its ugly head and, and the economy can recover, um, there's certainly opportunity for him to to recover ground among independents. Uh, that being said, I think Biden has, you know, he has not faced the same sort of hostile media environment uh, that that <laughs> Trump faced. And so even yeah, with I mean, not close. the best possible, yeah, so even with, with you know, pretty positive coverage uh, to see his numbers decline like this, uh, I think is what gives the, gives the administration and gives Democrats pause. One other point on Biden, and we mentioned this earlier, and I don't want to read too deeply into this sort of cultural signpost. But the jokes that were made at Biden's expense on Saturday Night Live over the weekend, again, a fraction of the country pays attention to that show. Journalists seem to be the base for that show in terms of their viewership. But to get laughs from the SNL studio audience about how bad his approval rating is and sort of poking fun at his lucidity or lack thereof, when you start to see a president – who has the support of the cultural elites and the media, when they start to feel comfortable on some level ridiculing him and those punchlines that have some bite actually land and make audiences in a place like New York laugh, that's not necessarily a great sign if you're Ron Klain, the president's team at the White House. No, no, I I, I agree with you. I mean – I'm not sure we want to read too much into that, but but it is. Of course not. I mean, you make a, you make a good point though that uh, you know Biden's Biden's troubles have now sort of broken through, and this question about his his you know mental acuity, which the Wall Street Journal wrote an editorial about on uh, I think Friday, which was the first time that it's really been brought up in a, in a major publication in that way. Um, yeah. I, I think those those things are. Uh, they are important markers to, to, to just keep in mind as part of the political landscape as we move forward, and th- those could potentially become become real issues. Meanwhile, in Virginia, this is where the president's job approval rating could come into play. This was a race that for quite some time the Democrats were leading. Terry McAuliffe, their nominee, was up. Depending on the poll you looked at, within the last, let's say, six months, he was up eight, he was up six, he was up four – More recently, it was, you know, he was up two or three or four. And now we have a number of polls in a row that show this race tied. And Election Day is one week from tomorrow. And there's also some reporting about the internal numbers that Republicans have that would suggest Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, might be slightly ahead. Terry McAuliffe is not campaigning like a confident candidate. I think that that was true certainly last week. I think it is true over the weekend as well. At the moment, Tom, what is your read on what's happening in Virginia? Because this has been a very tough nut to crack for Republicans, and I don't want to get caught up in fool's gold and get too hopeful for something that isn't going to happen. But it feels like this really does have a real shot of happening for the Republicans. I think it does. I, I think it does. I mean, again, it's, it, it went from being a race that, that was really an uphill climb. And you mentioned to me, Virginia— you know, that's a state that Donald Trump lost by six points in 2016, lost it by 10 points just a year ago. And so the fact that Democrats are even, you know, fretting about this, I think, gives you an idea of, of where the how the political winds have been blowing. Now, it does look like it's going to be a very, very close race. Um, and maybe McAuliffe will pull it off in the end. But I, I think and again, I'm <laughs> I'm a 
fairly cynical about these sort of things. I mean, I was sounding the alarm in before 2020 about it being close and contested. I mean, I think this race is going to be, uh, is going to be so close that it's going to be in recount territory and or you'll have a, a tested election outcome, particularly if Terry McAuliffe loses by, you know, 20 or 30,000 votes. I think he'll be – he's not going to walk away from that and say, oh, yeah, Glenn Young could won this fair and square, not – not the way that the Democrats have been talking about, uh, you know, election laws and those sorts of things. So I think it's going to be very, very close. And I think Youngkin has had the momentum here in the closing. To Harris, to Stacey Abrams, uh, to try and get, you know, particularly African-Americans to turn out. I mean, that he's already lost some ground in the northern suburbs, which is a key part of his coalition. And so I think that the definitive uh, factor in this race is whether he's going to get African-Americans to turn out in, you know, Richmond area, which uh, could make the difference. But again, I think it's going to be like razor thin close. So some biting of the nails down this final stretch of the campaign. And I know Tuesday night, next Tuesday night uh, will be fascinating to watch. I think people will be on pins and needles. And this is the other thing, Tom, and I'm not trying to bake into the cake either outcome. I think that Glenn Youngkin could absolutely win the election, especially if Republicans turn out the way that they need to and the way the enthusiasm at least looks and feels on the ground right now. Uh, But, you know, Terry McAuliffe, this is, as you say, a D plus 10 state in 2020. They've been tying Youngkin to Trump constantly, almost in a comical way. It's just so over the top. But that messaging, it doesn't have to carry the entire weight, but it can carry some of the weight. And if you turn out just the right number of people in Virginia, even in an off year with not a great environment for Democrats, the state might be blue enough for Terry McAuliffe to win, probably narrowly. As you say, I think it's probably very close one way or another here. But broadening it out and looking ahead to next year, if Virginia is a total coin toss, right, in a state that Donald Trump lost by double digits a year ago, that lesson, and particularly some of what's happening in the suburbs of Northern Virginia and suburbs outside of Richmond, for example, and some of the shifts that we have seen, at least in some of the internal crosstabs in some of these polls, those trends, even if Yunkin doesn't pull it out, which again, I'm by no means ruling it out, even if it ends up being a tight McAuliffe victory, some of the trends that made it so tight, you can extrapolate some of that stuff, right, into other races across the country moving forward in congressional districts, in gubernatorial races, in Senate races, in states that are closer, frankly, than Virginia is and were closer last year than Virginia was, right? I think that the fact that this is even this close and the Democrats are trying this rescue mission for McAuliffe with all these big names, as you mentioned, that points to a national environment, at least right now, that could be pretty rough for the Democrats next year if it looks anywhere close to the current landscape. Yes? No, absolutely. I mean, it would be if the electorate has shifted 10 points away from Democrats, uh, you know, across the country, it's going to be a bloodbath. I mean, it's going to be a wipeout. Even if it's shifted, you know, half of that, it's going to be very unpleasant for the Democrats next November. Um, Now, what they have going in their favor a little bit is that because Republicans did so well in 2020 in the House, not losing a seat, not losing any state legislatures, there's less, you know, Biden didn't have a lot of coattails to bring along as Obama did a bunch of, a bunch of Democrats who were just, you know, rough the picking in the, in the first midterm. 
Um, right. But on the other hand, in the Senate, I mean, you've got to look at these competitive Senate races in, in New Hampshire and Georgia and Arizona. I mean, if the electorate shifts five points in, in away from Democrats in those states, they're going to lose, you know, three, four, five Senate seats. I mean, it's going to be a real problem for them. So um, I absolutely agree with everything you said. And I think uh, that's what has Democrats really worried, even if McCullough pulls this out. Um, if it's if it is as close as we think it's going to be, that's not a good time for the Democrats either. All eyes on Virginia one week from tomorrow with the early voting numbers looking rather interesting as well. Maybe not great for the Democrats so far, but, you know, some of these breadcrumbs along the way and some of the writing on the wall, you never quite know until you actually know. Tea leaves aren't looking great. The vibes aren't feeling great for Terry McAuliffe, but it's a blue state right now. But it is awfully, awfully close, which is exciting and nerve-wracking. Tom Bevan of RealClearPolitics.com, the co-founder and president there, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Tom, always appreciate it. Thank you. You got it, Guy. Thank you. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, which returns after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. That new from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Here on the Guy Benson Show, happy hour. Thank you for listening. You know that I'm a college football fan, even though my Northwestern Wildcats are having a rough season thus far. Not as rough as Vanderbilt. At least we're not Vanderbilt. Sorry, Commodores. But they got routed over the weekend. Was it 45 to 6? Something like that. By Mississippi State. The head coach of Mississippi State is a guy called Mike Leach. He's one of the most colorful characters, I would say, in college football. He was at Wazoo for years. Now he's the Bulldogs head coach. So they won, and I guess he was feeling pretty good. He was asked about Halloween candy after the game. And he apparently has some very strong feelings on the subject and uncorked a bit of a rant. He was touched off by candy corn and his thoughts on that. Let's just listen together. Mike Leach, after his team's win on candy, cut 31. I mean, I completely hate candy corn. Um, uh, When I was a kid, well, gummy bears, let's see. Uh, Gummy bears for sure. Sour or regular? Uh, um, the, the the hair bow. It's got to be the hair bow ones. And then uh, the other thing I like is uh, is when they used to have the the uh, sprees in a box. Outstanding. You have to go to the dollar store to find it, but I do. And then the latest, the, the latest. You know, there's still candy innovation. Although a while back I found that Europe had better candy than we did overall, because <laughs> they have gummy everything. And. I'm pretty sure that was, like, immediately after the game. I think you can hear the band. Is that the band playing the alma mater? This is the immediate aftermath, like the post-game interview. Coach, your team played well. Any thoughts on candy corn? Oh, he sure has some. A little reference of candy innovation. Talking about how Europe has better candy because they gummy everything. So I am fully on board with his stance on candy corn. It's disgusting. I don't understand why people like it. It looks kind of cool. Like, the colors look like fall and Halloween. It tastes gross. I am also a fan of gummy bears. Not sour. I want regular gummy bears. I'll eat a whole thing of gummy bears. But I don't want gummy everything. I'm not a big candy guy. We've talked about my love of peanut M&Ms. 
gummy bears. That's about it. Maybe a Snickers. But the strong stance, I appreciate Mike Leach leading the way on candy corn. And people who are like, oh, no, everyone has it all wrong. Candy corn is amazing. No. Candy corn is not amazing. We all know it. I did see a candy corn cocktail where they got the liquids to go in the exact pattern of colors. That looked really cool. It looked cool, but I would not want to drink it. Now, producer Christine would, like, kick down the door and just guzzle it. Christine, are you a candy corn lover? You strike me as someone who would have bad enough taste to like candy corn. I absolutely love candy corn, and it's so festive. We always have, like, a little jar of, of it. What do you mean, of I did course? not know this, but of, of course you do. Of course you like candy corn. How could you not? I actually like the taste of candy corn, and Ugh. they also have, uh, like, the candy pumpkins. It's the same flavor of the candy corn, but they're in pumpkin shape. Love it. Love no, thank it. you. Now, the next thing you're going to be doing is candy corn on pizza. That's your next step here. It's just a descent toward madness. I will not stand for it. And we're up on a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm in agreement with Mike Leach, disagreement with Cookie, unsurprisingly. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue, it's the happy hour here on this Monday. And earlier in the program, in our first hour, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, he joined us to talk about a number of issues, including some justice on the diamond. Here's part of my conversation with the governor of Georgia. It has to be a pretty great time to be a sports fan in the state of Georgia. And I'd imagine a lot of our listeners in Atlanta are feeling pretty good these days. You've got the number one uh, college football team in the country. The Bulldogs have looked awfully scary. And then, of course, the Atlanta Braves punching their ticket to the World Series starts tomorrow in Houston. I think the whole country is rooting for Atlanta because of the uh, the cheating scandal of the Houston Astros. So good luck there. But it's sort of an abundance of riches on the sports front these days. Well, it is. It's uh, it's a great run that we're experiencing now. we got to keep chopping, as we like to say, and uh, we're just glad the series is coming to Atlanta, especially after the tragedy tragedy of the major league baseball moving the all-star game because of the election security act so this is a big win not only for the braves but also for a lot of hard-working georgians in our state and a lot of small business owners around the ballpark yes the commissioner of major league baseball might have been able to steal the all-star game because of a bunch of lies from the democrats about the law that you passed down there, but he cannot steal the World Series because the Braves earned that World Series. I'm sure he's been out of shape about it. That's too bad for him. It was a travesty what happened. We we had you on the show several times to talk about it. Is there an extra level of satisfaction here where you're feeling extra gratified potentially given what Major League Baseball did to the city of Atlanta, did to the state of Georgia in such an unjust and stupid and ignorant way a few months ago, now to have the Braves earn their way into the biggest showcase that the sport has to offer? Well, certainly poetic justice in a lot of ways, considering, you know, the pressure that they relented to when they really shouldn't have. I mean, it was ridiculous that the decision was a political one, and that shouldn't be the case in sports and you know, 
frankly, the the lies that were being told by Stacey Abrams and a lot of other people and the pressuring that was going on to get them to pull the All-Star game and then the flip-flop we saw after that to then come out and say, oh, don't pull the All-Star game, and they still did it anyway. I mean, it, it just really was awful what they did. I mean, it wasn't fair, and it's also ridiculous. I mean, you know, they, the Braves have been playing games in Atlanta the whole time. You know, and to move the All-Star game was just, you know, I think it is a sign of the times, but unlike the commissioner, we didn't waver. You know, we stood up because we knew what the truth was. We know that the bill makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat, and that's how it should be uh, in our state. And I've always pushed for secure, accessible, fair elections, and that's exactly what we got. And unfortunately, now you have the Justice Department that's being just as political sue in our state over Senate Bill 202, but we're going to continue to fight that and continue to tell people what the truth is as well. Yeah, and we talked about it at the time. Someone who was joining the chorus of dishonesty was the president. Joe Biden actually endorsed the boycott, endorsed pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta based on a bunch of misinformation. He referred to your law as worse than Jim Crow, which is just a shockingly insulting thing to say, but he said it. His home state of Delaware has much more restrictive voting laws than you have now. Major League Baseball is based in New York State. There are you know, Hall of Fames in New York State. They have, in some key respects, more restrictive voting laws than Georgia has. None of that seemed to matter because it was a big political firestorm. And you mentioned Stacey Abrams and her role in all of this because it really seems like still to this day she's trying to have it both ways where she was beating the drum and her colleagues and the Democrats in Georgia beating the drum on Jim Crow, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. And then when their rhetoric, their false rhetoric, actually had a consequence that was going to hurt their voters, then all of a sudden they just say, well, we actually don't want the consequences from and that have emanated from and resulted from our own rhetoric. And I think she's still sort of trying to run away from that and talk out of both sides of her mouth, isn't she? Oh, no, no question. I mean, look, there, it was so hypocritical of what the president was saying and what she was saying and what, you know, how ridiculous this all is, you know. I think we may have lost Governor Kemp. We'll get him. We'll get him back on the air. The other thing that I want to ask him about, and this pertains actually to another enormous race that's happening right now. We've talked about it a lot. We'll talk about it more later in the show. It's the Virginia governor's race. You would almost think that we were living in Georgia based on some of the people who have come to Virginia to campaign with Terry McAuliffe. Stacey Abrams came up and did a rally for Terry McAuliffe, along with Dave Matthews. He was there. And then the mayor of Atlanta, also came up to campaign for Terry McAuliffe. I think they're worried about African-American turnout. So they are calling on Democrats from Georgia to come up to Atlanta or from Atlanta, rather, to Virginia to try to save the bacon. My full interview with Brian Kemp, GOP governor down in Georgia, available online. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So I just got in late last night from San Francisco. Great wedding, had a great time, but boy, are they fanatical about their COVID theater out there. I have some stories that I will relay when we come back. Stay with us. 
For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show. Monday edition. Just got back from San Francisco for the wedding of my friend Alex and his new bride, Julia. Congratulations to the couple. Beautiful wedding. Really fun time. Great band. Really good food. Beautiful setting. All of the things. And it was fun to see a couple people that I know out there. Totally worth it, although that was definitely a lot of travel for the wedding on Saturday night. Glad I did it. And on Saturday, I got up. It's weird being on Pacific time. It just is. Right? Our football game started at 9 a.m. So I got up to watch the Cats get smacked at the big house. Competitive in the first half, and then just the wheels came off. In the second half... So I was like, late third quarter, they blocked a punt, touchdown. Okay, I think I'm done here. So I wanted to go down to the gym and blow off some steam. I knew that the evening was going to be filled with perhaps some drinking and some eating. So I wanted to sort of get ready with a nice, strong workout. Although as it turned out, I probably burned off some of the calories from dinner and drinks on the dance floor. Because if I have enough to drink... I will dance. And the mother of the groom, his family, they're big Fox fans, which is cool. She sort of beckoned me to come dance, and I wasn't sure. Like, you know, don't make me dance. But I'd had enough, perhaps, gins and tonic to be persuaded. And the music was really good. So that was fun. In any case, I decided to go to the gym. This is still at the hotel. And, of course, out in Northern California, Every restriction you can imagine, basically, for COVID is in place. I mean, just vaccine card mandates everywhere, very strict about it, masks all over the place, the indoor mask mandate, which we've talked about here on the show, because the mayor who imposed it famously ignored it, right? Mayor London Breed, that's her name out there, just like the mayor here in Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser. Those are two, I will say, those are impressive names. London Breed and Muriel Bowser. Strong names, bad leaders. Because they both force all of us to do things. And of course, everyone has to comply. You've got little minders all over the place asking you to do this, reminding you to do that. This is the milieu out there. It's just not for me. But these two mayors don't abide by their own rules, right? Bowser is like showing up at weddings, the mask off. She posts photos of herself indoors without a mask on. And then London Breed out in San Francisco had that famous video at the nightclub where she was just like drinking and dancing and partying for hours in a packed enclosed area in violation of her own rule. And she was just like, well, we don't need the mask police. I'm like, well, yeah, that's you. You're the mask police. And she had the amazing excuse when asked about it in cut 32. I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit. Yep. The old spirit feeling. Exemption, I guess. Only for very special people out there in San Francisco. And I will say this. I was feeling the spirit the whole weekend. It was a spirit-filled weekend for me in San Francisco. My friend was getting married. There was good music. And yet the feeling the spirit excuse would not have worked for me. Here's the example that I want to give you about how bonkers it was out there. So 
I go down to the hotel gym. I've got my room key, which is typically what you need to get access to a hotel gym. And I'm sort of absentmindedly, I swipe the key and nothing happens. A little yellow light flashes, not green. Then I look and on the door, there's a sign explaining that I need to go to the front desk and get a separate gym key because of the COVID protocols. Now, I look through the window into the gym, which is big. This is a big, for a hotel, you imagine sort of at a a smaller like Hampton Inn or Courtyard Marriott or something. Think of the gym and that size and multiply it by six or eight. That's how big this gym was. And I look around. There is not a single solitary human being in this gym. It is empty on a Saturday morning. And yet I have to go up to the lobby, wait in the line with all the people checking in, checking out, all that stuff. They are short-staffed because reasons that we've talked about. They have all the plastic dividers everywhere, which we know actually not only doesn't help with the spread of COVID, makes it worse, but if we've got people you know, spraying classroom ceilings like we saw in New York City to sanitize ceilings based on no science at all, why not just keep plastic dividers up, even if it hastens the spread of the virus? Because you just got to you got to show how much you love science, even if you don't love science based on your actions and what the science actually says. It's just nuts. So I finally get up there. I have to show them my vaccination card to get a special gym key to then go back to an empty gym and work out by myself. Now, I think I probably was required to have a mask on in that gym. I will confess to you, now that I am outside of the jurisdiction of Mayor London Breed, that I did not, in fact, wear my mask at the gym. I did a 45-minute Peloton. They had some Pelotons, which was nice. Although they had every other one was unplugged, so you couldn't use it for social distancing reasons. I'll repeat, there was no one there. And the bikes were at least six feet apart. It's just insane the hoops that they make you jump through in some of these places. And I know they're talking about relaxing some of the stuff. I just don't know, like sitting at the airport, when are they going to let us not wear masks anymore on airplanes? I don't see an off-ramp anytime soon on that one. And again, I don't want to like whine and moan too much, but it was definitely frustrating. I was already in sort of a sour mood because of the uh, Northwestern football outcome. Not surprised, but still displeased. And I go down to like punish myself with a 45-minute ride just to sweat it out. And I have to go through a whole rigmarole. Probably took me 20 minutes just to get access. I had to show all this stuff. And even proving that you've got the vaccination still doesn't exempt you from anything else. And I'm someone who has both shots, and as many of you recall, I had a breakthrough case. I have all the antibodies swimming through my veins against this disease, and it doesn't matter. I mean, it should, right? Scientifically, it matters. But according to our allegedly pro-science overlords, it doesn't matter. And thus we have these types of protocols. I saw a lot of people wearing masks outside. I just, 
I don't know what to do with that. There was a rally this weekend in Virginia where they brought in Obama to try to help Terry McAuliffe. And it was not that big of a crowd, honestly. Glenn Youngkin had a bigger crowd. He didn't have any major name. I mean, that's, I think, sort of interesting. But there was a bullet point. There was a whole, like, FAQ on the website, the Democrats and McAuliffe, and they were asking people to wear masks outside. No, it's just no science at all. It's just superstition. It's spooky season. So we've got all of our superstitions, masks and plastic barriers and special gym keys for the empty gym. Ugh. And actually, when we showed up at the reception, at the wedding, at this very nice club, they had a whole process. They had like three minders where they had to go and you had to register in advance and provide all your documentation about your vaccine status and all this stuff. And they had a name and you had to show your ID. These are not even government people. These are just people at the club trying to abide by these mandates in the city. I don't believe I've ever had to, like, check in with a photo ID. And by the way, this is a city, of course, where I think most people, certainly the Democratic base and their voters there would say, oh, no, voter ID requirements are racist and wrong. Even though 75 percent of the country disagrees, this is what hardcore Democrats believe, right? It's just horrible and racist to ask people to prove that they are who they say they are before they vote. But to attend a wedding reception, I had to show my photo identification. In the city of San Francisco, having already pre-registered all my 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 documents, like show me your papers if you want to come in and dance to Sweet Caroline. And again, having the spirit. Not good enough. I should have tried that if I were feeling a little bit more cheeky, I might have tried that. But again, you don't want to make a scene at someone else's wedding. You just sort of do the thing. Christine, any thoughts on this before we go? I'd make a scene, but I'm sure you're I'd, not surprised by that. I'm not sure if you would. I'm not sure if you would. I think that you made like a little bit of a scene at your daughter's school. We talked about that last week. That's completely, I think, justified in my mind. But at someone else's wedding, I think that good manners dictate that you don't cause a problem at someone's wedding or on their big day. Right? I know it happens from time to time, but it's very poor form. So I bit my lip, kept my mouth shut, and did what was asked of me. You would do the same thing, especially early in the evening. The drinking had not begun yet. You had to do all these things to get to the drinks, which is why I'm convinced you would do all the things. Because you would have the bar sort of like lurking in the background with a little glow emanating from it. Ah, and you, this, that's where you wanted to get. Was it an open bar? Oh, yeah. Oh, tell me more. Anything you wanted all night. Nothing better than an open bar at a wedding. <laughs> You're just sort of fantasizing. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I'm sure you are. It's Monday, though. You know that. Although it is the happy hour. And we're out of time. Back here for the Tuesday edition on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. I'll be on Kennedy tonight on the panel. Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. I will see you then and talk to you back here. Have a great night. Hi, 
everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.